Pinegate Renewables is a fully integrated renewable energy company powering the nation's energy transition with trusted utility-scale energy and storage solutions. Building projects from a community mindset, Pinegate is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. It was such a packed summit that we couldn't fit in all the discussions into two podcast episodes. So I'm pleased to bring you some bonus interviews from both days. Expect conversations on solar tech, permitting, a look at some of the innovative solutions being found by companies across the U.S., and some of the social and community initiatives that are happening in the industry. It's not just, oh, we need an upgrade here or we need a, you know, a new line there. It's, it's a whole different mindset around how we think about the grid itself. David Grolo is Senior Vice President, Head of Origination at Pinegate Renewables. As Head of Origination, David is a power generation industry expert, spearheading and growing commercial offtake relationships to accelerate the expansion of utility-scale solar projects. With over 15 years of experience at Community Energy, Iberdrola Renewables, and NTE Energy, he is well-versed in the development and acquisition of natural gas, biomass, wind, and solar projects, and applies this knowledge daily in the creative negotiation and execution of power purchase agreements and origination solutions. David, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, David. So tell us a little bit about Pinegate Renewables and the work you're doing. Yeah, Pinegate, Pinegate's been busy. Actually, I've been with the company for about six and a half years. I've been with the company when we were just a team of, I know, about 12 or 13 of us. And we've really grown over the years, and now we're about 1,200 strong. So I've, I've seen the growth from 12 to 1,200, which has been really fun to see. And uh, when I first started, we were just doing uh, early stage development of renewable projects. And now, you know, the team's working through about 25 gigawatts of solar and storage projects across the country um, from soup to nuts, from, you know, early stage development, literally going out, negotiating and working with landowners to acquire or lease land, um, working through all the permitting and interconnection processes, financing those projects and now constructing them, owning them and operating them. So yeah, from New England to, to Georgia to Texas to Oregon, we've got, we've got projects everywhere. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine you've been real busy. I mean, in the first quarter of 2023, we saw a 47% increase uh, in installed solar capacity and from first quarter of, of 22. You know, in addition, I mean, 54% of new generating capacity added to the grid was solar. Uh, so there's a huge demand. What do you think is driving uh, that increase and where is it coming from? When I first started in renewables uh, about 20 years ago now, I started actually interning um, for uh, a wind developer, a large wind developer in the Philadelphia area. And I remember literally knocking on doors of mid-size, you know, retail, uh, commercial storefronts, you know, asking them to uh, buy this invisible product called the Renewable Energy Credit, the REC. And, um, and I even remember, you know, doing presentations in front of Quaker houses, right? And churches and, and anyone who would, you know, listen about, you know, why renewable energy is important and why it would be really valuable to them. And it was like pulling teeth back in that day, right? It was no one knew what a wreck was. No one knew, you know, how energy sort of worked or uh, how renewable energy is interplayed with the current power pools. And so, you know, over the last 20 years, for sure, and even more recently, over the last 10 years, the demand, I think, you know, with increased education around how important renewables are, how how, how important uh, mission-free power is, 
been coming from everywhere. I mean, I you know, when I think of the last few years especially, we work a lot with, of course, corporates and um, utilities, cooperatives, municipalities, all kinds of entities across the country. And we've really seen that demand coming, I, I think, more more recently, a lot of that demand is coming from the corporate side. We work a lot with to the Fortune 100 list on helping them achieve their renewable goals. Um, a lot of them have sustainability goals and mandates, you know, coming up in say 2025, 2030. And so we work really closely with with those corporates on an incredible amount of demand. I think last year alone, we reviewed and responded to about 75 gigawatts of inbound sort of, hey, we want, you know, we want renewables, you know, and that kind of demand, 75 gigawatts. I mean, I think Texas, the the ERCOT load is is 75 gigawatts of projects. And so when we look at, you know, responding to 75 gigawatts of demand, um, you're looking at sort of the size of Texas's uh, uh, demand there. So it's it's incredible to see that for sure. But it's coming from the regulated side as well. We see um, regulated utilities based on, um, you know, state requirements or renewable portfolio standards um, that are encouraging and effectively requiring um, some of the more regulated spaces to procure more renewables. And so we're seeing a lot of more regular solicitations from utilities in that respect, um, you know, looking for more renewable procurement. So it's it's been all over the board, David. Yeah, it's, it's been quite a quite a growth. Wow. So uh, so being in the renewable space 20 years ago, you've seen a lot on the evolution of the of the market. And I mean, you, you've definitely got governments involved. You've got more publicity around it. Uh, people know what they what they want and they're more interested in it. And so they're, they're more educated. But what are some of the, the key factors? Like if you were to look back on even just the past decade uh, of the market evolving towards the energy transition, what are some of the other factors that may not be as, mo- as pronounced that you think are really driving the interest, uh, particularly in solar? Yeah, I think, you know, a few, there's a few big dynamics, of course, that, that have interplayed. I think some of the things that I talked about really regarding awareness and, and general demand, you know, I think a lot of it has, has come to the general economics of, of, of solar. Solar's gotten cheaper to build over time. I mean, more recently, that's that that uh, model or or downward curve as we've seen on on the cost side of solar um has has changed a little bit but generally over the last decade for sure solar has come down in a way that's more competitive um and and really achievable from a mass market standpoint you know from from really creating a larger market here so you know i think that piece just the reduction, you know, the 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 softening of what we call the cost curves, or this, you know, the the capital costs associated with building a large solar facility, um, has has really come down in a in, you know a material way that's made it more accommodating. You know, I think the other you know, variables that have had a pretty foundational piece to the growth of renewables is that uh, you know, in a lot of ways, these these procurements, especially when you're looking at the structures that that PineGate pursues um, related to different virtual power purchase agreements or power purchase agreements. Um, in a lot of cases, um, the customers that we work with are not only getting green benefits and, and you know, these additionality benefits, you know, that effectively means that if, if it wasn't for them, this solar project wouldn't have gotten built. All of those have been great for sure, but they're also making money on these on these structures. Um, and so we see customers really excited about procuring renewables because it's, it's actually, it's the customers that we work with are actually doing really well on the on the economic aspect of of those procurements, and so we see that as a really just again foundational to 
future procurements when when customers see that oh when I enter into long term contracts for renewable power I'm actually going to you know make money as well as achieve my renewable targets and goals uh, that's it's just a win win and so that's been really um, I think part of the you know reason for the reason for a lot of the growth especially on the corporate and voluntary side of the renewable market and of course the regulatory piece um, which which can't be understated especially uh, more recently with the the IRA but uh, that's always that's always a piece that groups like Pine Gate and others work hard to to solve for. Um, every market is so different in the in the in the U.S. Not just from a regional perspective, but even down to the state level. Um, and so it is it is blocking and tackling across the board. Um, you're working at the regional, state, and and at the federal level, of course, um, with the IRA. So so uh, yeah, all of those things I think come to together to to create a really exciting market. You know, one of the things we hear a lot about uh, the challenges facing the industry are the interconnection issues. Um, what do you think could help alleviate some of those obstacles, um, you know, in, in an accelerated fashion? Yeah, interconnection is definitely um, one of the largest challenges we see as an industry. I think there's no there's no question about that. The power industry itself and just the, the, the grid, like the network of wires across the country has been a mashup of different types of generation over decades. And so you have this system of really centralized energy, right? Centralized power plants providing a ton of energy. And the whole network was built around those large power plants, large facilities, you know, pushing power out to where the load zones are, where big cities are, where there's a lot of energy being used. And you're seeing right now this transformation of the grid in, where instead of sort of just centralized mega power plants providing power um, and pushing that power in a very specific direction, you're seeing, you know, like you pointed out, David, earlier, there's so much solar being, you know, entered into these into these queues. And when you have that happening, it really decentralizes where um, some of that concentration of power is located. And that requires a whole different thought process around how your network, how your infrastructure is, is built, how it's designed. And I think that piece is really the growing pains of, of the execution part of our, of our industry. Um, it's painful. The grids are our challenge, you know, where we're going through study processes, you know, when we, when we, when we uh, want to connect a solar farm onto the, onto the system, we have to go through a series of studies to get that solar farm connected to the grid and those study processes take a long time now they used to be much more consistent but they obviously take a lot longer now because of the complexities around adding new generation um and there's just so much coming online and so that takes a whole it's not just oh we need an upgrade here or we need another you know a new line there it's it's a whole different mindset around how we think about the grid itself and i think there's a lot of great minds going into you know that restructuring but definitely the biggest challenge and we're we're excited and hopeful that a lot of that, um, you know, that the strength that renewables are carrying and, and bringing new, new uh, clean energy to market is going to help build that the strength of a new of a new network of a new grid. So, yeah, we're excited about that, and I think you're you're hitting a really you know a real challenge in the market that every developer no one's no one's uh, immune to. With all the with all the talk around the energy transition, you know, hopefully these regulatory guidelines or initiatives, uh, consumers can help accelerate. Uh, getting those approvals done, the grid monetization, and the, just the technology development to help. That's right. Yeah, the technology is a big piece, right? And we 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 uh, talk and 
and uh, hear a lot about battery systems, right? Energy storage. Uh, Pinegate has several gigawatts of, of energy storage uh, projects that we're pursuing to relieve some of that pressure as well and to provide dispatchable power. Uh, and so you have you have um, technology like that that's also uh, entering into this larger network. Um, so yeah, it's it's complicated, but I think we have some great technology solves, and um, it's it's uh, it's going to be, I think, exciting over the next several years. The opportunities that that creates on the transmission and distribution networks um, is is pretty amazing, I think. And so uh, yeah, I think the next ten years is going to be quite quite a transition for our for energy system. You mentioned the IRA earlier. Uh, how have you seen the impact for Pinegate and your business? You know, in short, what the IRA does is create certainty around the future, which solar developers, you know, renewable developers in general have been working in environments where there's just, you're wondering what the next two, three years uh, are going to look like. Uh, and you do that in every industry, right? You're, you're as developers, you take risks and you take um, certain assumptions about what the market's going to look like and where it's going to be, but especially as it relates to tax credits and how we look at the capital costs of a solar farm. I mean, could you imagine, you know, looking to build a house uh, over the next few years um, and you don't know whether that house is going to cost you $500,000 or $300,000 and you're trying to make decisions around whether you buy the land to build your house on or, you know, go through some of the permitting activities or get approval from the HOA or whatever the, the activity would be. Um, it's really hard to make investments when you when you don't really have a good concept or stability around what the future holds for how much it's going to cost you to build. And of course, we have elements of that in every aspect of, of renewables, right? We don't know what solar module or panels will cost uh, in the next two or three years. We don't know what interconnection upgrades are going to look like in the next two or three years. So we, we're very used to you know, dealing with those kind of variables or, or, you know, those challenges, but in how material a lot of the, the capital cost side uncertainty was, uh, especially as it related to the investment tax credits that, um, renewable developers, uh, integrate into the, into the structuring of these projects. Um, that was, that was, that was a big hole that is now, um, really again, now certain over a long period of time where, you know, we're in an industry that requires time to make investments. These solar farms don't just get built in a year, right? We're going through um, two years of development activities um, and starting construction, say, putting a shovel in the ground um, two years after we maybe bought the land, maybe even three years after we bought the land. So we're making investments that we're trying to, you know, you know, crystal ball the future three, four, even five years in the future. And so when you're making decisions like that, it's really hard to not know what the capital costs look like. Now we know what they look like, especially again from the on the um, on the tax equity side. And so uh, that has provided such a fuel to the fire on on how we can make long term investments. This isn't just uh, let's let's you know let's go invest in some projects and hope for the best. This is all right. We have a market here. We have stability. We have a you know, certainty around our future. And so it has just created that foundation that makes a company like ours just double down on our investments and 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 really feel confident about the future. Yeah, the IRA has really been impactful uh, for the industry. And I mean, are there any other policies that you think would be helpful to maybe take what's in the IRA just a, a few steps further as it relates to the energy transition? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, we're really excited about having the current IRA in place. And, and I think that's, again, foundational to how we look at the future. 
think there's always more that 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 can be done to spur more growth in renewables. Um, I often think of renewable energy credits as a place to focus on at the federal level, where renewable energy credits truly are the the product that reflects the value of a megawatt hour of renewables going into the grid. And so, you know, that product as a defining variable for the value of renewables is always at the state level, especially really a a focus under these renewable portfolio standards that you see in some states. And even at the voluntary level where, you know, corporates are procuring those renewable energy credits to meet their goals. Um, And we've seen in this environment where there just aren't enough projects to meet the demand of these goals, we've seen those renewable energy credits really go up in in value and, and, um, a uh, federal, you know, approach on how we evaluate and really look at renewable energy credits, I think, could be really interesting. Um, but we're just happy to be uh, have, have the foundation that we we've got and we're we're running with that. So um, always hopeful for more, but but very very excited about what we've got in place and 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 running from there. Going back to the start of your career twenty years ago, uh, how have you seen investor sentiment change and evolve? over the past 20 years, kind of specifically as it relates to solar or just renewables in general? Yeah. You know, I think I come back to the wreck. I remember back in the day when we would structure, say, wind farms or we would we would look at the capital stack or the revenue expectations um, or so of a, of a project. And we always concluded that there's what's called the missing money piece. There's they're sort of, yes, the revenue expectations of that wind farm or solar farm makes X, our lenders and, and tax equity may require Y. And so there was a missing money as to where where that that um, that met. And the renewable energy credit was really born out of that missing money concept. We need a wreck that comes from some sort of voluntary market that fills that gap so we can attract investment. Because right now the returns aren't strong enough for investors to care um, and so we need to create a wreck. Um, and then, of course, it's evolved into this emissionality and additionality conversation, which is really great. Um, but I think originally it was like, hey, we don't have enough money to attract investment. Let's let's create a product. Um, and so that's evolved where I think the wreck still is that missing money, actually. It, it is that way in a lot of markets still, um, especially expensive markets like the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, um, and increasingly everywhere. So I think... I think the rec still plays that part and and um, has become really valuable in a way that I don't think many people thought. Like, you know, we've done recs where they were fifty cents a, a rec um, for in in the history of you know when when they were not horribly valuable, and now we're and it just it's significantly valuable uh, now. So I think there's there's some of that 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 um, we point to, but now with again the IRA and that stability that we talked about of the future, um, it's. I think where you've seen that that you know that flame is 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 now we're seeing a ton of uh, investment from infrastructure funds that have been adding more and more interest to their renewable portfolios, whether they're customers or investment, you know, uh, their investors required or not. Right, we're seeing the interest not just because say um, a fund might require it uh, or shareholders might require it out of the fund. We're seeing it. Because it's a good investment, and and so I think that stability over the future has has been a big part of of attracting more investment. And uh, again, I'd still point to the rec to adding some of that some of that value for sure. 
So we've seen some of the supply chain issues uh, that we've been facing for a while now alleviate uh, somewhat in the in the first quarter. What's Pinegate experiencing in that regard? Yeah, no one has been immune to the the schedule challenges for sure. Supply chain issues and and um, it's really challenging. And I think we're we're overcoming uh, quite a, a speed bump on on some of those challenges. So so some of the ways Pinegate has has approached these. Um, Pine Gate's strategic construction partner, Blue Ridge Power, has a really robust procurement team that we work closely with. Um, and that team, you know, is entering into long-term master supply agreements where we're, we're a really large buyer in the market. We're one of the, I think one of the largest on the renewable side. So that, that buying power, we put to good use in terms of um, really creating those commitments on supply and, and, um, and feeling confident about that. We literally have teams that go out to these manufacturing facilities, whether they're in Pennsylvania, India, Vietnam. Uh, our teams are out meeting, entering into sort of quality control roles um, and really understanding where what expectations are going to be for um, when we, say, order a significant amount of, of modules. And so uh, we have a logistics team that tracks where exactly they are at all times when in the manufacturing process and the transportation logistics process. So I mean, we are on top of that, on top of that piece. But even with that strength, um, there's still, you know, schedules can still be fickle. And so we work, um, obviously, on the procurement side, but I also work as as leading a lot of the the power contracting piece in creating more flexibility in our contracting, right? I think flexibility is one of the most, one of the priorities right now in how we look at um, our partnerships and, and, and how we transact with, with um, our customers. And so in some of that, and so, of that world, we we try to integrate a certain flexibility around schedules we just can't control. In general, you know, when when a, when we turn on a solar farm, it's some of that's based on interconnection challenges or supply issues, and so in some cases, we just have to require uh, a level of flexibility on when those med- megawatt hours are gonna are gonna turn on. So that's how we we've, we've approached it to date. Always evolving, but I think those two ends of the spectrum on the procurement side being really efficient, entering into levels term. Um, supply agreements and really overseeing that, and then creating flexibility in how we schedule. I think is uh, I think is pretty key. Yeah, at least we've seen it alleviate somewhat uh, here in the first quarter, and and hopefully that will that will continue, uh, and maybe some policy decisions or actions taken that will that will further make sure that the the supply chain uh, is there to meet demand. Yeah, agreed. Now we've got aggressive net zero targets ahead of us, right? Looking out to 2050. Where are you projecting solar to be kind of in the 2040, 2050 timeframe? Any kind of crystal ball predictions that you have as it relates to solar by then? You know, I think of the continuous improvement train that we're on right now. The industry has gone through so much in the last 20 years. I mean, we have, we have, I feel like gone through the battlegrounds of you know, bringing on new generation, new renewable projects, and it has not come easy. And I think you're seeing an industry that's really growing up, right? We've 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 been fighting for getting projects online and, and providing renewables, and there's been a lot of headwinds, and and those it's been kind of lumpy in terms of how those products have come to fruition, or where and when and how, and it's been a little bit bootstrappy, I'd say. And we have completely changed. I mean, as an industry, we're getting smarter about Market smarter about interconnection build out. We're working with communities a lot closer and 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 really valuing how we look at our community development activity and relationship building within those communities. That I think 
previously has been has been good, but but uh, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the industry to be better. We're getting smarter about how we look at where to put these projects and where the the grid really needs them and, and batteries and technology. Like there's a lot of great routes that we've created and pattern recognition that we have now where we're going from, you know, kind of maybe less efficient to being a machine, you know, to, to really understanding and building out volume consistency in how we approach expectations. I think, you know, with the stability and, and with, again, the foundation the IRA creates, it, it's helped support a really strong approach for uh, a long time to come. I think if there's anything I know about the renewables industry, we will climb over every wall to make sure we execute. And, and right now, it's all about execution. And I think that's what you're going to see in the next decade. We've got a lot of building that we've done. We've put in a lot of projects in the queue. We're ready to go. Now that we've seen the patterns, we know the challenges, I think you're going to see a lot of focus on execution of how we get these projects done, how we work with challenging interconnection environments. And so, yeah, we're excited for the future. And, and I think we continue to to uh, push these projects forward and, and uh, again, execute on, on what we're on what we're planning to, to execute. And I've said a number of times, there's a lot of smart people uh, involved in the industry trying to solve these problems because it's complex with grid monetization, wind, solar, the, the, the various different technologies that are applicable and are going to be a part of it. Uh, the good news is you see more and more of the younger generation you know, coming out of coming out of school, ready to start their careers, really want to be part of green energy and the energy transition. So I think we'll just continue to improve from there. But listen, David, really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, compliments on on the name. It's it's a great name. <laughs> but uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, David. Appreciate it. Pinegate Renewables is a vertically integrated renewable energy company powering the sustainable energy transition. With one of the largest operational fleets and solar development pipelines in the nation, we support sustainability commitments and provide renewable solutions for utility and commercial partners across North America. We have a trusted history in executing utility-scale projects that generate cost-effective energy solutions and provide attractive long-term investment opportunities. Pinegate built solar projects with a community mindset and is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. I'm now joined by Eric Hafner from Origami Solar. They're developing a patent-pending steel solar panel frame that's transforming the solar industry. How does it work? Let's find out. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So what are you finding most interesting about the summit so far? The quality of, this, of the presentations. And, and I'm more focused on solar, but they were outstanding. I think that the work that was uh, being presented, in particular by the Wood Mac people, was, was extraordinary and super helpful for us. So what does uh, Origami Solar do? And, and also, how'd you come up with the name? Well, I'll start with the name is that what we're doing is we're taking flat sheet steel and then through a very clever series of roll forming process, we fold it into something that has a lot of strength. And the solar industry, for since its inception 60 years ago this year, uh, has used aluminum frames, extruded aluminum. And aluminum is itself a very problematic metal. And we figured out a way to make the frame out of roll form sheet steel, 
which has a higher performance, in other words, stiffer and stronger, and it reduces greenhouse gas by about 90%. How about the weight uh, compared to aluminum? It's a little bit heavier. So we use, uh, uh, it's about double the mass, but for utility scale and for commercial, all of the panel lifts are done with two people, and we're well within OSHA or other requirements in terms of the lift. So we add around uh, two kilograms for the very large module and about a little less than one kilogram for the, uh, say, residential modules. And how about a cost comparison? We are, steel itself, is the material is about one-third the cost of aluminum. We use about twice as much steel per kil, you know, in terms of kilograms than aluminum. And so we're able to compete on a price against the imported aluminum frames. Any supply chain issues uh, or concerns you have? Well, I think that what we're doing is solving a supply chain concern. The amount of uh, frames needed, one gigawatt of modules requires 13,000 kilometers of frames. And the U.S. is rapidly moving to 60 gigawatts of production which means that we would be importing 800,000 kilometers of frames every year from China and Southeast Asia to meet that demand. At Origami Solar, we're going to manufacture using U.S.-made steel and U.S. manufacturing right here in the U.S., and we can produce it at about 10 times the rate that an aluminum factory can. So we're solving a major risk to the supply chain. And how have you seen the contracts uh, come in, particularly in light of, look, we got a record first quarter, uh, for solar in the United States. Um, but how do you see business going forward over the next couple of years? We are overwhelmed, frankly. We'll start sending our products out in Q2 of next year as we get our factories set up. Right now with multiple module manufacturers, we are providing frames for their putting onto their panels and going through the certification and testing process. Uh, and so we, we think that we're gonna be oversubscribed for a long time. Any other changes to the current modules that would be required to, to fit with the frames, or is it just kind of plug and play? From the start, we were very conscious to exactly mimic the form factor of aluminum frames so that both the automation of putting frames onto the panels as well as to install the panels, whether or not it's a clamp down or a bolted or the clips, all of those work seamlessly. And so both the EPCs as well as the manufacturers will basically have a swap out with no significant changes to either of their processes or equipment. So it sounds like, I mean, uh, you, got, you got three things in, in particular, uh, cost competitive, uh, lower greenhouse gas emissions from a manufacturing standpoint, um, and then domestically sourced uh, supply chain. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of positive aspects of this. Any other that, are, that I'm missing? Well, the again, the, the, the supply chain to be able to reshore jobs and actually bring a new industry to the U.S. We're thrilled about that. You know, it's been so frustrating. I've been in solar for 32 years, and I've seen over and over and over that innovations that are generated in the U.S. migrate quickly overseas. First it was to, you know, to Ch uh, Japan and then to China. And that to be able to bring this into U.S. manufacturing and to support U.S. jobs, it's wonderful. So anything else you're looking forward to uh, for the remainder of the conference? The, besides the, the presentations, the networking here has been really remarkable. I think, one, that the venue is, is very high class, and it lends itself to being able to have sort of intimate conversations. And I've also found that the attendees are very open and looking for those kind of networking elements. Uh, I, I, I don't feel that uh, you have to work very hard to go and connect with people here. 
and that's been a really a really good positive element of this. So uh, I'm a big fan. It's my first time visiting one of the uh, attending one of your conferences, but we will definitely be back. It's great to hear. Yeah, I I think the setup that we have here has been terrific because, you know, we've got our 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 podcast booth over here, but with the sponsor booths and just a really nice setup for network. And I see all the tables full of just people getting together and having a chat. Absolutely, and. The ability just to have you know an intimate conversation in a conference with several hundred people is a, is a it's the perfect sort of match. It's a it's a good mix of of both attributes. Well, Eric, I appreciate you stopping by and and talking with us today. David, thank you for inviting us. We're looking forward to it, and uh, we really enjoy the work that Wood Mac does, and and are happy to be associated with you guys. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the summit. Thank you. Patrick Reagan is founder and CEO of Crossroads Solar. In this discussion, he explains what Crossroads is all about and why it's important. Crossroads makes solar panels. We also remake or help remake men and women's lives. We only hire men and women who are transitioning from prison back into society. So that's the totality of our workforce, except me. And we make solar panels to do that. So we train them how to make solar panels. We train them how to go on sales calls. We train them how to do inventory management. And so effectively, we're taking people who haven't had much opportunity, and now that they're out of prison, might not have much opportunity, and saying, come work for us. We'll pay you a good wage, and we'll give you benefits, and do it right. Get your life back together. Now, we also, particularly compared to what you'll see here, We have a lot more labor in our panel production process, in part because I'm really a workforce development company as we happen to make solar panels. But when you think about it, you know, we sometimes buy Maseratis, I don't, but Maseratis and Lamborghinis and Bentleys because they're handmade. You know, that's part of the advertisement to it. So we get, you know, I mean, people are touching our panels, making sure that there are no problems in a panel, we probably get more factory seconds because of the human touch involved. But we also weed them out so very few factory seconds get out the door. We're in a completely automated system, just like a Ford or a GM, they get out the door and they have warranty problems or something like that. That's a very admirable initiative on the labor front. What, what are some you know, big success stories that you've seen come out of that strategy? One, we're profitable in our first year of production as the more highly priced panel, uh, not, not the most highly priced, but a higher priced panel than others. You know, watching people, uh, somebody after his one year anniversary spent time in jail for some armed related crime. He got out got his family back and everything, he tattooed me and the plant manager on his leg as his form of showing appreciation to us. He permanently put us on his leg, which, you know, like, wow. But, you know, everybody who's worked for us um, really is a success story. There are many who come in and they don't last very long for various reasons, mostly their own choice that they're not ready to to make that transition from uh, inmates to employee and citizen. But once they do, they seem to stay, and it's great. I mean, I sit in my office, and I look out, and I think, huh, this was well worth it because of them. 
Good. With what Crossroads does on on the manufacturing side, how are you seeing the supply chain operate? Are, are you seeing constraints continue? Do you expect that to be alleviated anytime soon? There's still supply chain issues. They're fewer than they were a year ago. But, you know, I buy at the smaller end of quantities and whatnot. So I probably pay a higher price and I'm secondary or tertiary to some big supplier buying them. So I'm a little bit down the food chain. (laughs) If it comes to a supply constraint, I'm going to feel it where somebody else might not. We are slow right now because frames weren't delivered on time. We shut down last Christmas because the solder wire couldn't be delivered on time. And we buy it out of South Carolina. So it wasn't that the ship didn't sail. It was it didn't work in a U.S. manufacturing facility. So we're still subject to it, but it's getting better. Shoot, the curve is going up quite rapidly over time. So I mean, what else do you think can be done from a policy standpoint to help incentivize future growth? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier the IRA, and, and overwhelmingly that's been, particularly for the solar industry, positive impact to, to a lot of different companies. So I'm assuming that you're seeing a positive impact as well. But beyond that, what do you think can be done, and this goes beyond policy, maybe maybe it's funding the available capital to the industry um, that would just help accelerate this? Well, I'm not certain, even though I love the IRA. It, it is supply-side driven and it's demand-side driven. Demand has to grow or all the supply-side stuff doesn't make any difference. And I think the IRA does both. I think any time an industry lives or dies on government subsidies, it's probably a bad long-term strategy. So I would hope that the industry gets a strong enough footing and we wean ourselves of that government support. I suspect that will happen, but it didn't happen to the oil and gas industry, so maybe it won't happen to us. I think one of the things that needs to happen is you know, attitudes and perceptions and willingness to invest on the part of the consuming part of our country has to change. So I fly into an airport and I look down and there are no solar panels on the roofs. I'm going to fly into Chicago tomorrow. There'll be no solar panels on the roofs of the buildings that surround the airport. Well, what that's telling me is Company X has a rooftop that would maybe put a megawatt of energy up there, and they don't want to make that $2 million investment. They'll invest it in a machinery that produces whatever widget they're producing, but they're reticent to invest it in producing energy that they also consume, but it's the, you know, it's the collective good. It's the intangible contribution, and until we see industry just choosing to invest in energy production, the demand side is always going to be lagging. And it shouldn't take an incentive structure to do it. It seems like it does take an incentive structure to do it. But, I mean, I'm a business owner. I spent money on a new piece of equipment, an assembly line. That's an investment in what I'm doing. Putting solar on your roof is also an investment in what you're doing. It's also an investment in the planet. And to make it a personal level, I manufacture solar panels for a living. And if I surveyed my friends who hear me talk about this all the time, you know, how many of them have solar panels? It's perilously close to zero. And 
Why? Well, it's easy to buy it from the grid. It's just simple. You don't have to plop down 40 grand. It just comes in and you plop down 150 a month. So, you know, anybody who interacts with me is talking to the converted, so to speak. I'm converted, but they're not converted. How can they not be converted? How can industry not be converted? We'll pay for the forest fire remediation. We'll pay for the bad air that we have today. And these are all costs. Insurance companies have quit writing policies in Florida and parts of California for forest fires and, and hurricanes and all that. Those are real costs if you're a homeowner. So you'll pay a higher insurance premium, but you won't pay for solar panels. That's what's got to change in my mind. Yep, I agree. Well, Pat, listen, I appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, it was great to hear about all the good work you do in the community with Crossroads. So uh, appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Nonprofit and charitable endeavors are one of the most inspiring parts of the solar industry. Since 2010, Let's Share the Sun has been installing solar across Haiti, Honduras, and Puerto Rico, helping those most in need to reliable, renewable energy. Bill Jordan is co-founder and joins me now to tell us about it. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is an exciting conference. So tell us a little bit about Let's Share the Sun. Well, the Let's Share the Sun Foundation is something that my wife and I co-founded concurrently with a for-profit business, Jordan Energy, that is a solar development business in 2009. Uh, and our idea was to donate 10% of profits from the for-profit and to have a vehicle for getting other people involved in helping to facilitate solar being installed in the poorest parts of the world. So that was 2009, and uh, January 2010, the earthquake happened in Haiti. So that kind of became the place to go to. And uh, first years of Let's Share the Sun, we'd raise money and then we'd get delegations to go and do solar installations, try to partner with really new solar installation companies that were emerging in Haiti and very high impact, you know, it was a devastating earthquake. But, you know, since then we've expanded to other countries and the 10% has grown as Jordan Energy has grown. And what's been really exciting is the partnership with other industry companies has just grown tremendously as it's a very attractive kind of thing to go to a place like uh, now primarily Puerto Rico. After Hurricane Maria, we got a bunch of invitations to go to Puerto Rico. And I would say a good majority of our work is in Puerto Rico right now, but we still have engagements in Honduras, Haiti, and um, new invitations in all other parts of the world, really. Uganda now, Mexico, Peru. Uh, we see it growing pretty dramatically. Yeah, I know um, a number of woodmackers are, are big supporters of the foundation and were involved in the initiatives in Puerto Rico. Uh, how, how impactful are those types of partnerships with the corporations at getting more and more people involved? It's impactful on both sides of the equation. Uh, on the side of the company that is interested, like Woodmack, first year three people went, raised money, uh, helped to make 10 solar installations in the mountains happen. And the delegations are just wonderful times where everybody on the delegation bonds. And so that support was doubled the following year for March of 2023. We put solar on 20 homes, you know, and, and a domestic violence center that we'll be hearing more about tomorrow with a video that's coming out that Wood Mac has put together. But then there were 25 solar professionals in this latest delegation, 12 university students that learned from the solar professionals. And then we worked through 
solar installation companies from Puerto Rico. So that's the local economic development. We're not just popping down donation, but we're working together with Puerto Ricans to help improve their energy reliability. So uh, just fantastic. I mean, the doubling of number of people from Woodmeck has happened with other of the solar companies that donated panels, for example, sent one person last year. Now they sent three people, they donated panels and some money. We try to look for the easy yes, but it's like highlight experience for your solar employees, if you think about it as a solar company, to go for a week. They come back really enthusiastic and very much rejuvenated for the work they do uh, on the professional side, day in, day out, as solar continues to grow in the developed world where we're all working. What are some of the challenges that you, you faced as you've been targeting some of these locations with this initiative? Uh, well, logistical challenges are really uh, the biggest and first that come to mind. We did solar on 10 rural homes and isolated roads where each house was 15 to 30 minutes from each other. Their isolation and their power goes out, you know, on an average six times a month. So the criteria for that was medical needs. So I think there's the logistical challenge of being isolated. But then, you know, what happens if you have a dialysis machine and your power goes out and you need that machine to run? You got to get a generator going in the middle of the night some of the times that kind of with people that have oxygen machines going. So people in these parts of uh, like rural Puerto Rico have seen depopulation. So the town of Adjuntas, where we've worked, had 22,000 people before Hurricane Maria. They're down to 17,000 people. So you had a little exodus of the young people looking for employment elsewhere. And the good news is that solar is really an avenue for job creation on an island like Puerto Rico. Same for Haiti, same for all the places we've gone. So with every challenge, there's some upside opportunity that you can also look to. So how can people learn more and, and get more involved? We always look for the easy yes. I mean, our website is very easy, www.letsharethesun.org. Right now we have a campaign with Wood McKenzie to raise $10,000 around this conference for an, an addition, uh, the next home that we would support. And so that can be anything from, the, you know, 20 we've gotten $20, $50 contributions is great, up to keep on donating more. I emphasize the easy yes, because if you do something that is easy for you to say yes to and you like it, Nine times out of ten, we've gotten people that want to do more, companies that want to do more. So we're very accessible. I'm the co-founder and president of the board. We have an executive director that's in Uganda right now. But we would welcome all inquiries and we follow up very closely to find that easy yes for your particular situation, your company or whatever seems most feasible to get a relationship started. Well, Bill, thanks for joining us. Great work that uh, your foundation's doing, uh, and appreciate your time. Well, appreciate. Uh, Wood McKenzie's been a vital partner. We see it growing in fun ways for everybody that gets involved, so thank you. Great. Enjoy the conference. I'm now joined by Nate Webb from Passage Studio. Passage works with leading energy suppliers to optimize their systems. Nate and Robert Cross from Cross Consulting Services explain how they help clean tech providers make better decisions. Robert, Nate, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you. So, Robert, how are you enjoying the conference so far? It's great to connect and see people face-to-face -face and talk business. A lot of uh, good energy here, seeing the opportunity globally and getting a better understanding of the business landscape with all the policy that's happened in the past year. 
Nate, how about you? What are your key takeaways thus far? The key takeaways is this is an industry that feels like tech was 30 years ago. You know, a massive market opportunity, capital being poured in, and the intersection again between government and private. It's just been fascinating to hear from people from the Department of Energy, from startups in the solar development space, and seeing again just the bullish nature that everyone feels around the, the energy and the clean tech space. Now, you're with Passage, and, and I know that you do stuff on the software development, particularly for startups uh, down to you know later stage companies. Yeah. How can you help encourage some of these early stage tech startups that might be resource constrained and help them kind of accelerate their product development and deployment to you know further the energy transition, which is what we're all trying to achieve? It's a great question, David. You know, in a lot of our work with startups, you know, these folks have to watch every penny that they spend, right? They're getting investment and they have to be sure when they're making a critical hire, that's the right hire. And a lot of times, you know, they're building their core product with a lot of back-end engineering resources or a couple people. In fact, sometimes we work with companies that have part-time CTOs. One of our clients, you know, their CTO is a professor at a university the other half the time, right? So really our value is coming in early stage. We do things like a design thinking workshop where we're basically putting together what's called design systems. You know, So that's basically a recipe and a playbook for these companies to take and use. And as they start to scale and build more resources internally, that resource, that design system helps them build that platform for the longer scape. And we'll actually bolt onto these teams and basically become what's called a fractional CDO, so a chief design officer, to help them lead that product to commercialization with the end goal that hopefully they're going to be able to hire resources internally. We'll even help them review portfolios, resumes, and sometimes these companies you know, won't need us after a couple years, and that's a great place for us to be. And we slowly kind of embed ourselves within that team and help get that market to fit. How have you seen the impact from an energy management standpoint? Because that's what a lot of companies I know are focused on right now, whether it's a, a smaller family-owned business to Amazon, Meta. They're all focused on how they can more efficiently use the energy. Yeah, and I think software can play a really critical role in the, in the energy management space. A lot of the companies that we've worked with have a really manual process for ingesting data in order to understand this complex ecosystem that where the product comes into play, you know, is we actually are developing a solution that they can get data from the field, they can provide actionable insights to people like land developers and site technicians, and so that when they're making an investment, that they can actually know where that money is going and those dollars are being spent well. Robert, do you have any thoughts there? Demand side management. A lot of thoughts in regard to it. I think that education is really important. One of the things that we're talking about at the conference has to do with better storytelling. And if you think about people and how they use energy, for the most part, they're used to turning on a light switch. They're not thinking about it all the time. But having better software that's explaining how you use energy, particularly with energy storage and EVs and demand side management and how the landscape's shifting, we have to bring along people as well, you know, like homeowners that don't necessarily work at the companies but are being impacted by all this change. Yeah, you're right. We've, we've talked to a number of people on this podcast, and, and education is one of those big things. Um, and people, I think, would be a lot more behind the energy transition if they kind of understood things. They don't necessarily understand all the different aspects that go into it. Robert, how are you seeing kind of the, the software development impact the overall energy transition? And what, what do you think can help be developed to take some of these initiatives forward? My company focuses on a visual storytelling so Crest Creative, we build assets to kind of make it easier. A lot of the companies that we work with are focused on product design, the widgets, the wadgets, the bells and whistles. 
But in order to really achieve the growth that we're looking at, we have to make it easier for people to use the tools and become familiar with them. A lot of it has to do with apps, stuff mm -hmm. that Passage is doing. You know, if it's, it's gotta be consumer friendly. I work with different manufacturers and they're developing a product and, and they're focused on the installer, but somebody's experiencing that technology as well. Mm -hmm. And as we're getting into more platform management and data management and things of that ilk and we're pushing into the home, the user experience is critical. And I think that that's where software has to come in. Smart software will lead to a better adoption. It's just like Steve Jobs' old mantra, right? Mm. It has to be simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of us are drawn to this industry in part for the complexity. Just thinking about decentralized power and EV mobility and EVs and all, all this different stuff, this landscape that's shifting, but many people are being pulled along or they're being impacted. So our job is to make it easier, whether it's software, storytelling, simple. Simple is better. And so many of these companies too, right, have started with a core product that was a very manual process for their customers. You know, a lot of this data was stored in Excel and then they would build an interface, you know, and no knock on engineers who work with engineers have engineering in house, but sometimes these user interfaces are developed by engineers. So when the product is going to market and there's multiple different users for the product, whether it be again, a site technician who's out in the field having to ingest data, a land developer, an OEM or a back office employee of this organization, once they're really ready to get that product to market, that's where we come in and we make sure that that user experience and user interface is clean and looks good, but it looks good so it functions as a business value. So there's more customer acquisition, there's more sales, there's less friction, right? So it isn't designing to make something pretty to make it pretty, it's designing it to make it useful and impactful for our customers. Have you seen any momentum behind any certain area versus another? Energy storage. I was just say, yeah, home energy management systems. I yeah. mean, energy storage, particularly with net metering going away. V2X. Um, mm -hmm. Happening in California, you kind of see the shift. In certain states, it's going to be more cost effective or prudent to marry PV to energy storage. And then you start thinking about that, that's more information. That's where you get into demand side management or time of use with certain utilities and you got your EV. So I think ultimately, it's the integration between manufacturing, hardware, software, and the user experience. Mm. That's where scale starts happening. And, and the only way to do it is to be intentional in design. If you're not intentional in thinking about the user experience through those phases, you're going to run into roadblocks. Well said. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate you guys both stopping by and taking time with me, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. It's nice to meet you, David. Thank you, David. Appreciate the time. Well, that's it from us. The Solar and Energy Store at Summit 2023, I think, was a huge success. I'd like to thank all my guests for their time and you guys for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the insights and analysis, and I hope you can join us next year. Bye for now. Thank you.